everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of How'd You Like That Movie? This is our third annual Oscar showing. And uh, as uh, previously said, we uh, have uh, our co-host Scott had a sudden and tragic death in his family. So he's going to be away from the show for a bit. But as they say in the business, the show must go on. And uh, to help us out, we've got Josh. Is it Gofton? Yeah, it's G-O-F-T-O-N. Think of like, you know, the mercenary, she's like Grofton, Grafton, just like take away the A and, you know, and the R. And it's like Gofton. I don't know. It's it's a name. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, with the even harder name, Michael Clark. This is where you tell me you're actually like there's umlauts above the A and it's actually said Clark A or something. Uh, my, my line is always I'm burdened with the most popular men's name for like 36 straight years and the 26th most popular uh, English uh, surname. So there's a lot of Michael Clarks kicking around and I run into them frequently. But we've got the best one because they're on our show. So yeah, and no E at the end of Clark, the proper way to spell <laughs> are, it. Are you related to Michael Clark Duncan by any chance? Because that's a pretty cool actor. Guy. No, I, I definitely had an office space relationship with Michael Clark Duncan uh, when he yeah. like really hit in the 90s, where it's just like, yes, I understand that he's a very popular actor. He's very, very different than I am. Uh, <laughs> I don't my, know. Maybe you're related. Who knows? The, the yeah. better the better and more disruptive instance was that in an episode of CSI, a character named Michael Clark was horribly dismembered in an episode. And they say his full name like 96 times throughout that episode. And it's still the thing that like relatives will throw at me. It's just like, hey, you weren't murdered in Vegas, I see. And I'm like, yes, that's it's a timely reference from an episode I, I, of TV 20 you years could, ago. You could have also been like the pedophile on the show. And they're like, pedophile, Michael Clark, pedophile, yeah. Michael Clark. So someone Googles you and they're like, pedophile, Michael Clark. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that I was watching a movie last night. I was watching Cloak and Dagger from 1984. And oh, wow. Was, that's old school, man. That's and, a fantastic they just, They're like, the Atari 5200. The Atari 5200. Oh, is this an ad for Atari? You know, they just like write over and over again. They just really hammered down that point. You know, uh, you know, maybe you get a lot of Michael Clarks like that. <laughs> pretty much yeah so okay speaking of michael clarks if you guys are cool mike why don't you uh who who are you in the zoo but that qualifies you to be on this just amazing podcast uh well i am the uh the chair of the board of directors now formerly the programming director for the the grand river film festival which festival. is where because this is an international show uh the grand river film festival uh is a film festival centered in uh the region of waterloo uh primarily in cambridge ontario uh but also in kitchener and waterloo ontario um we do showings all along the the beautiful Grand River uh, that that flows through Ontario, and that's um, in uh, that's in Ontario, Canada, correct? Ontario, Canada, yes. Uh, we're going into our fifteenth season this year, which is uh, amazing. Um, we are getting ready to announce our uh, lineup in the next couple of weeks, and our festival is happening in uh, May, and we're we're very excited and very busy getting that all planned up. Um, I'm also the co-host of a uh, my own movie podcast, uh, Mid Credit Scene, um, where uh, it was a pandemic project with myself and my co-host Mike Pereira, where we we desperately wanted to uh, be back in a bar and just aimlessly talking about movies with ourselves and the other barflies uh but because it was the pandemic we couldn't do that so we decided to start a podcast where we don't really talk about anything in particular other than movies come up every once in a while uh and uh, that's our show and we release those episodes uh, uh monthly 
Nice. A couple of uh, white guys with a podcast about movies. I, that's a new concept. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We really thought about like breaking the mold during the pandemic, really thinking outside of the box and, and reaching for something new. Josh, what about you, man? No, I really like the way you're breaking the mold there. Uh, I'm Josh. I, I do things. I, I, I also host podcasts. Uh, surprise. Uh, you can check out the Josh and Tyler show with two S for, well, I don't know if we can swear on the show, but you can figure out what the second S Oh, you can fucking swear so fucking uh, much on this fucking, fucking show. Fantastic. So we make do, a note uh, of that. <laughs> But we do we do a show and we have a, we have a good time. We talk about movies. Usually we get completely sidetracked, and I usually get into a rant, which maybe you'll have the pleasure of seeing today because I get very angry sometimes. It's incredibly entertaining. I'm also a director. You can check out my films and everything. I, I mostly focus in horror and drama. And I mean, I think I've met Michael before because if you've been to the Princess Cinema, you know you probably met me. That's how that goes around. Yeah, and the Princess for those uh, listening is if you're in the Kitchener Waterloo area, Southern Ontario. Uh, it's probably the premier repertory house yeah. going. Like it is exactly what you think of when you think of a repertory house, especially the Princess Original. The, the Princess Twin is a little nicer. Okay, can you confirm? Was the Princess a porno theater? It was. I yes. can confirm. So actually, fun fact about all the princess cinemas. So the princess twin cinema was a furniture store and before that was a morgue. So um, that way back in the day, like way, way back. So and then the princess original was an Italian theater where they play adult films. Yes. But don't worry. The bosses went out and bought another theater in Hamilton, which was uh, another Italian theater that did the same thing from the same time as Playhouse Cinema. It's a fantastic place. I, got I couldn't imagine uh, having to walk up all those stairs just to jerk off in a movie theater. Yeah. Like, come on, man. I'm already doing cardio in the theater. I don't want to do it again. Go watch the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, you just got to let Clint Eastwood do what he does, and that's up to you what you want to do. <laughs> so. Uh, so, Michael, you're we, anytime we have festival directors on, we always like to ask, like, can you tell us about the process that goes into picking films and how, like, how hard is it? Just, just give us a, a background on like, how many films do you figure you get submitted to the Grand River every year? It's incredibly difficult to, to program a festival. Um, one, because, and especially right now in independent film, which is what we center on, there is so much content out there. Like the pandemic did not slow filmmakers down, which is great to see. It was one of our, our big worries. Um, you know, for the last last year, which was my last year as the programming director, we watched 180 films uh, between features and, and, and shorts. Um, this year, my programming director has told me that uh, even more were submitted. Um, they come from all over the world. We are a very local festival and our kind of modus operandi is to bring things into our community that you would have to leave our community to see. So we're not trying to, you know, compete with the likes of TIFF. Um, we're not uh, saying that, you know, we're a, a premier event um, for to bring others, but we want to give people in the community a chance to see films that they would have to either go to Toronto in September or New York or Europe or anywhere else to see. And narrowing that band of, you know, 200, potentially 300 films down to you know this year i think we're going to be showing six to eight features and maybe you know a couple dozen shorts um it, it really is a lot of work um and to make it even harder um we have such amazing local talent and local filmmakers that we want to give 
you know, an audience a chance to see, um, because my line is always, it doesn't matter what, where, uh, what stage a film, a filmmaker is at their career. They at some point started out as a local filmmaker. And if they hadn't been given those chances and those opportunities to show off the films they were making at home, they wouldn't have made it to the next step. Um, and, you know, I was talking to um, the the head of the registry theater, which is a, a stage theater uh, here in Waterloo Region, and he was saying the exact same thing. You know, if you've got a script and you want to put it on stage, you start at that level, but it, it eventually you want to see your productions on a larger stage. And it's the same with movies. You want to see it with the, the local audience on the big screen, and then you get that thirst, and then you you move to Toronto, you you get slightly um, larger audiences, but you start at home. So finding a way to um, find a corner of our festival for the local stuff, as well as bringing amazing other Canadian and international um, films to, to town, really, really, really difficult. Um, and we're just thankful that the pandemic hasn't slowed down the amount of, of available films. Uh, what would you say is like the biggest mistake you see with filmmakers in their submission process? Um, you don't have to, you don't have to put together a package that is, you know, super glossy and professional. You don't have to uh, pretend like you have the, the might of the Warner Brothers Corporation behind you and putting together your media, but you do need media. Uh, because a festival is part of your promotional tour. If you've got a film, you're making the rounds. A festival wants to promote your movie because we want an audience to go see it and we want them to remember who you are. So like having a trailer, having a couple stills, having a, a small information package about your film that we can then use in our marketing material is incredibly important. Because the alternative, if you don't have those things, is I'm going to scrub through your film and I'm going to pause it and I'm going to take a screenshot because I need, you know, those sorts of materials for social media campaigns and for our sales platform and for our website. And I, I want to promote the film as best as I can. And the best way to do that is with your professionally assembled material. Um, and if I don't have that, I'll, I'll make it work, but it's, it's going to be a lot harder. So you don't need the digital media package, but you do need some media. That's kind of the takeaway. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to pivot to you, Josh. Uh, so you have a kind of an interest. You host. Uh, so as anybody who's been to a repertory theater knows, they always have the cool events, right? They've got whether yes. an Oscar showing, The Room, my favorite Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, my goodness. Did you come this year? I, I didn't come this year, but I've been uh, you every coming, year before. I usually dress the... up. Nice. I probably insulted you on stage at one point. No, I never go on the stage. Uh, I just sit in the audience and throw throw my rice. Or oh, I like to about. pick a good audience member out and just, you know, really, really bring him down a peg. Listen, we can do that this year. I'll be there. Uh, got any cool stories? Like, do you want to like, because like you're, you're yeah. in this weird space. So yeah, give us some yeah, anecdotes, so. man. I guess, I guess I just started hosting because there was no one else to host. And I started <laughs> Default, with- Default, man. It's the best two words no, there in was the English no one language. Else. Everyone's like, everyone's like, so we got a guest, we got a thing. It, you know, I did paddling film festival and I did a little bit of rock climbing and there's the go bananas thing. There's like a million local festivals. There's the motorcycle festival. There's the music festival. There's the Zonta, you name it, it exists. But I don't know, one day they're like, hey, do you want to host? And then one day I just got the Oscars. I'm hosting the Oscars here. So if you come to Princess Cinema, free show, 
come on out. We'll have plenty of space. I'll be telling terrible jokes and uh, consuming the time on the red carpet just for the fun of it. Well, making sure the awkward part is and the hard part is after about 40 minutes, people don't want to talk to you anymore. You're like, I'm going to talk to that person anyway. So you get those repeat viewing people. I don't know. I just host things. It's fun. I mean, I've always enjoyed hosting Greg Sestero from the room. He's a blast. Super nice guy. Um, usually just, you know, chill between the movie. Cause I, I don't think he likes the room as much as, you know, everyone else does. <laughs> I think he wants to do something good and he's got a new movie coming out. So hopefully he'll be back at the princess soon. Um, I also got to host Chris Williams recently, which is really, really cool. Um, he's the Oscar nominated director for the sea beasts, as well as the Oscar winner of, uh, big hero six worked on Mulan, Lion King, all that sort of stuff. So I really got to have a nice conversation with him and he's, wonderful guy he's just a really nice guy making um if you haven't seen the sea beast go see it it's fantastic i know your netflix is being taken away and you gotta pay for it now and <laughs> but um absolutely fantastic guy wonderful film and you know we get guests like those in and just it's really great to host at the princess what can i say thank you john and wendy so you know fantastic uh are you guys ready to do the oscars Absolutely. Okay, uh, question. You said Go. to dress up, right? And I did not. I dressed up and you wore a Blockbuster shirt and you got like a tux. <laughs> did I overdress? Do I need to like go change and come back? Uh, so I was actually going to comment on that. Uh, to quote the great Hannibal Lecter, love your suit. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's, uh, I found it at the thrift store. <laughs> no, it's awesome. It's fucking great, man. No, it's, it's good. Uh, this, is, this, is what it, uh, this uh, is what I wore to the Canadian International Comedy Film Festival. So I figured nice. if it's good enough for that, it's good enough for the Oscars. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I am coming uh, to us live from my parents' uh, Oscar watch party in 1994. <laughs> Uh, I, ha I have my popcorn. I, I have my uh, my Calvin and Hobbes to read during the boring red carpet bits. I'm going to uh, to listen to uh, Weird Al's Alapalooza during the commercial Where's break. Yo, hold up. <laughs> uh, you know what, what was great about the, the watching the Oscars in the '90s right, was that. I'll do cassette if you do CD. Okay. Nice. Nice. We'll match. Yeah. Excellent. You, he's fantastic artist. Um, uh, what was great about watching the Oscars in the nineties was that TV guide would have a, a checklist of all the nominees uh, mm. so that you could follow along at home. Of course, being 1994, uh, I was lucky if I could get past the sound editing before my mom told me that it was my, uh, uh, uh bedtime so i'd have to find out who won director and picture the next morning uh -huh. when i was getting ready for school so uh for all you really yeah. young people out there the tv guide was a a book with words that you would pay for and then they would tell you what's on tv because you didn't get yeah. to pick what was you were going to watch on tv so old-timey talk here uh on the how do you like that movie podcast <laughs> I mean, I always love the TV guide would like tell you if the movie was edited or not. Cause like you would see if you're going to get like the real version of the movie or if it was like the edited for TV version, you know? Cause then you were allowed to watch it growing up. Cause like it's edited for TV. You can watch it. Which meant it was crap. <laughs> yeah, I know pretty much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I watched DC cab the other day and I watched that on TV a lot on spike growing up, but then I watched the other version. And I was like, Oh, they cut a lot out for, uh, you know, TV. <laughs> What a strange movie. It's got Bill Maher, Mr. T, and uh, what's his name? Um, Gary Busey. What a strange film. It's like a strange montage editing. It's like makes Batman and Robin look like an Oscar picture. So uh, on the topic of Bill Maher, I just recently watched, what is it? Uh, 
attack of the Amazon avocado people or whatever. The, oh, attack of the Amazons in the avocado jungle or whatever. And it's just like the most ridiculous fucking movie ever. I love I old like B movies though, man. They're super fun. Oh my goodness. Best B movie ever. Where is it? It's Sleepaway Camp. It's that's the best one. That's, I mean, but I that's genre. I don't know. And we can't go down this rabbit hole, but when you start talking genre, it's the best. Is it still a B movie? Because a lot of genre is already campy and B. To me, a B movie is like, I don't know. Actually, no, now that I think about it, because if you think sci-fi B movie, genre horror B movie, uh, you know, any exploitation essentially is B movie. So yeah. Is any B movie ever been nominated for an Oscar that I'm aware of? Ooh, uh... It depends if you count something like Shaft. Oh, true. Oh. Like during that exploitation run in the 70s, I think there were probably a couple that snuck through. Um, but whether or not like, Shaft, maybe not a B movie. Shaft in Africa, almost certainly a B movie. <laughs> Shaft Africa. score? Definitely. <laughs> All right, guys. So we, I mean, we have, we're going to be talking about best picture, best director, best male and female actor. Uh, and then I also gave you guys uh, a wild card. Normally, Scott and I would do that, but just for brevity. I'm going to let you guys do your wildcard picks and we'll, we'll talk, talk about those and then we'll work our way up and we'll obviously finish with best picture. So, uh, you know what, Josh, we'll, we'll start with you. Okay. What's your wildcard, um, uh, category? I want to go with best foreign film. Okay. Best international. I'm just going to go. Yeah. Best international, best international feature. Um, because, uh, I have seen the quiet girl pretty good. I've seen, um, EO. I liked it. But for me, like the best international feature of this year that blew my mind. I've seen it now three times, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. I was blown away by this movie. And as a person who's like, I love black and white movies. I'm studying silent films. I've seen the original. I don't know. There's something about it. When I'm watching this movie and we get to a point and I'm invested in it and it's, it's violent, but I'm, I'm, I'm invested in the characters. And I think the pivotal scene for me of why this should win because um, everything else is fine on the list. There's nothing wrong with those films. They're obviously nominated for a reason. But uh, have you guys seen All Quiet on the Western Front? Yeah, of course. We did a whole show on it. Oh, perfect. So my particular scene, and this is such a small moment. Um, so the two soldiers are sitting there peeling potatoes and the cart comes along. And the way this soldier puts down his gun and just abandons this war and walks away, there's so much more feeling in that shot than most movies I've seen this year. There's a level of emotion. There's a level of, let me tell you what's happening. Let me tell you how I feel about the war without a big monologue, without us going full whale where everyone gets a monologue and such nothing wrong with that. But there's such a nice of show don't tell in this movie where you understand every character, you understand their emotions and it's exemplified by this scene. It's absolutely brilliant. That's what I go with international film here. Uh, so I've only seen three, but I'm going with All Quiet on the Western Front. I think yeah, it will win, and I think it should win. The international films are always tough because often we don't even get really access to them until after the Oscars, right? They, they show up at the Oscars, and then suddenly their distribution increases uh, or, you know, a streaming service picks it up or whatever. Uh, Michael, what are your thoughts just on, on, on Josh's uh, pick there? Yeah, uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think that... Um, it's a an example of a new trend that the Oscars are doing where they hedge their bets, where a foreign film comes along that um, international, it's, a, a, it's an it, international, international, film. international film comes along that grabs uh, the critics attention, maybe has a, like a surprising run at the box office, although uh, 
Quiet's a Netflix release yeah. in North yeah. America, right? Um, they did it with Parasite, although Parasite ended up winning Best Picture. Mm -hmm. They did it with Drive My Car. They're doing it with All Quiet, uh, Quiet on the Restaurant Front, where they will nominate it in the, the Best International Film and also the Best Picture category, knowing, except for Parasite, that it has no hope in actually winning Best Picture, but they're hoping to like get a bit of cachet by uh, dropping it in both. Um, my first thought when I watched All Quiet, and this is just the way my brain works, is if I were going to do a, like a film school study of putting two films up against one another and, and kind of showing like, this is how you do this. And this is how you don't do this. 1917 immediately came to mm. mind where like all quiet is everything that I think 1917 wanted to be, but it 1917 was so concerned with its gimmick and with um, trying to, um, project everything that all quiet succeeds in doing but without the intentionality or that without the desperation is a harsh word but that's the word i'm going to choose right now like all quiet just lays it out there it, it it shows you everything that it wants you to feel and you feel it whereas 1917 seemed a little bit more uh desperate in in hitting those same points and couldn't escape its its self-contained gimmick mm. Yeah, and I would argue that 1917, whether you want to call it gimmick, it was more like show with no heart. Like it doesn't have the heart mm. that All Quiet on the Western Front. That said, though, it's All Quiet on the Western Front based on a phenomenal novel. The, the film's been made at least two times that I'm aware of. You've got the black and white version, and then there's the TV version, which is also very good in the 70s. Mm. Yep. Uh, 70s, sorry, early 80s, early 80s. Um, is this the best version? Yes. Um, I think since I've been following international features since 2017, when one of my favorite directors, Sebastian, blanking on the last name, won for Fantastic Woman, which is an absolutely incredible film. If you have not seen his work, go watch Fantastic Woman. I've just been really invested in like the international film. And I think this is absolutely the best version because your 1929 version's going to come out with its black and white and it's going to have its charm and it's definitely going to appeal to some people. But as I've discussed on many things and with many people, people don't like black and white films. They're afraid of black and white. They're afraid of something new. So this also has that reach of the color and it's never going to have that impact that the TV movie is going to have. Like there's a, like they did the Alamo in 1970, then they did the Alamo in TV and then the Alamo remake but I always take the original on that because they're always trying to play off what has already been done. I think with All Quiet on the Western Front, they went right back to the book, right back to the drawing board and really reinvented this character, this script and brought something out of the story I've never seen before because 1931 is an excellent film and I will always love that film, but it definitely doesn't have the gravitas and the character acting and the way people even act is entirely different now. There's an emotional level as opposed to, I'm a German soldier. <laughs> I'm an American soldier and there's nothing wrong with that. I like that, but there is a difference in the way acting coaches, there's a way, a difference in cinematography, the way they were able to make that. It feels cinematic. The 1931 feels cinematic, but that looks like something you'd watch on TV with your grandpa. And I like that. I love watching old movies with my grandpa, but for me, this is the definitive version because of its technical ability and the way it's reinvented the characters. So it is nominated for best picture. It's uh but it swept the BAFTAs. Mm -hmm. So it's, I, I can pretty much, you know, if I had to decide it's, it is a hundred percent going to win for international film, which is unfortunate. The other films they're, they're coming to the Oscars being like, you want to just get fucking drunk because all quiet's already got that. <laughs> it won for film, won best film, best director, best screenplay, best cinematography and best non-English film at the BAFTAs. So 
<laughs> like that, that is a, all, that category is locked as far as I'm concerned. Do you think it's going to be, and I will, we can talk about this more in the best picture. Do you think it's going to be competitive for best picture? No. Okay. I, I don't want too much more on that. Michael, I do you won't think say it's going to be competitive? Uh, I probably have to also go with, no, I'd love to say yes, but the best picture field this year is an interesting one. It is so many good films, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Michael. So what was your category for wildcard wildcard? My favorite category, or at least the category I always pay the most attention to is uh, best animated feature. Oh, Uh, interesting. I love animation. Animation is my, uh, my, my um, soapbox category. Um, I thought that last year's animation category was one of the strongest um, uh, group of nominees that they've had in a long time. This year's very interesting. Uh, kind of disappointed that Selnick uh, didn't uh, get in there with um, uh, the name is completely blanking on me. The the Netflix uh, film he did with uh, Key and Peele, um, which would have been nice because then it would have had uh, there would have been three stop frame animation um, films nominated. But uh, Puss in Boots uh, kicked it out. Um, my I think will win is uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Um, the Academy loves del Toro um, and it's a very beautiful piece of um filmmaking all right can um, i can i stop you for a sec so yeah. it looks really beautiful and about a quarter of the way through i turn it off and i'm like this is a fucking mess i don't need to watch this <laughs> fair i watched it in two chunks uh i also I turned loved it off it. halfway through i absolutely loved it i've watched it through twice this is one of my Jeez. favorite animated movies in a long time i'm completely opposite of you guys i love the style i love what del toro does with it so i love I, the aesthetic i love uh, yeah i love the aesthetic i just thought the fucking story direction was fucking gar- hot dog shit so i i i i'm picking it as my think will win because the the technical prowess on it um it you know Stop Frame is having a resurgence and Del Toro is a great ambassador for that. Um, and I think that it it will win for more of the technical achievement than necessarily the, um, the, the overarching. My think should win is Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Yes. yes! Yes! Yes. That is a wonderful, beautiful film. It made me cry. Yeah, I saw it at The Princess. I think it's absolutely beautiful. That the Academy decided it counted as an animated film blows Good. my mind, but it's absolutely the right choice because I think that it would be out of contention in any other category. I think that it has a real chance. Um I know that it was an odds-on favorite for a while. I think that the the odds have dipped a little in its favor. I would love to be proven wrong, and I would love for it to win. I think that Del Toro's pedigree and his history with the Academy gives him a little bit of an edge. I think that both of those films completely knock the other ones out of contention. I love the Sea Beast, and as you said, Chris has uh, pedigree with mm-hmm. the Academy already. Turning Red is great. It Fuck has... Turning Red. I hate that movie. It <laughs> pissed me off. <laughs> I think that its biggest uh, mark against it is the fact that it came out during the pandemic. It went direct to Disney Plus, and it and Pixar and Disney are not batting as strong as they have been over the last little while. Disney had an abysmal year yeah. with its um, uh, animated turnout, and Puss in Boots is just i just know it's in there because dreamworks paid for a, a sizable campaign to get have it you in. seen puss in boots it's, i really enjoyed the animation style and i like the story and i like the villain 
But um, when it comes to turning red, the biggest issue with me is the characters. There's no actual characters in the entire movie. You have our lead who can turn into a panda and she's exploiting herself for money. Then you have all her friends, which are just random, like, I'm loud. And it's like, they're not characters. This is a Saturday morning cartoon turned into a feature. And then they're trying to comment on whatever you may comment about and and such with women and such there but they're not doing anything new to comment on it they're like well, we hey, just look. We're, we're just gonna throw that out eh? no like, this women and such and they're still no, they're just they're at the end of the day the, the movie doesn't pay homage to what they're trying to do it it's got split focus it's trying to be a woman focused movie about a girl growing up but then it's trying to be a movie about her friends trying to go to a concert but then it's trying to be a movie about her ashamed of turning into a panda it doesn't have focus it's split every cut character is some like I, I, I think I'd see more character development in freaking Monty Python sketch. I can watch the Ministry of Silly Walks tomorrow and get more out of it than watching Turning Red. The only thing it has going for it is its animation. The animation is good, but we've seen that a thousand times. I saw the new trailer for Pixar. It looks cute, but I've seen Inside Out. Give me something fucking new. I don't want to watch the same thing over and over and over again. Give me something new, Pixar. Give me something to grasp onto and give me characters that matter, not just plot points that drive the story. Well, and I think that this is why Del Toro and just, you know, stop motion in general has a resurgence, right? It's like you said, so yeah, Pixar did all this really great work and then they just were sort of like, well, we're fucking Pixar. This is what we do. And animators were like, I'm a fucking animator. This is what we can do, right? Mm -hmm. I want to see more fucking claymation and shit. Yes. Like, I love all that. So Michael, can you actually quickly explain the uh, why Marcel was originally not qualifying and then it did get qualified. Can you can you do that or? Yeah, yeah. So the Academy, for, for all of their categories, the Academy has thresholds that a film has to meet uh, before it'll be considered within a category. If it's a, uh, a foreign language film, then a certain percentage of the film has to be in a language that isn't English. For animation, a certain percentage of the film has to be animated. And that percentage is, I think, around 60%, um, which is a weirdly low threshold considering that no like edge case has ever been nominated in the category. This has traditionally been the Pixar Disney category. Um, the, the, the great shame that Miyazaki has lost to a Pixar film in the past in this category is abysmal. Um, so the, the, the discussion that had to happen when it was being submitted for animation was the Academy had to go through and basically kind of like, it's the same with the acting categories where you see those factoids that, you know, um, Anthony Hopkins won for uh, Hannibal Lecter, uh, but he's only in 18 minutes of the film. Correct, um, yeah. Or Judy Dench won for uh, Shakespeare in Love and she's only in two scenes. Um, you know, what qualifies a person to be able to be nominated? They went through and they, they figured out what percentage of the film was stop frame versus which percentage was um, live action shot um, and which percentage was composite. And my feeling is probably that a large percentage of that film was composite and they counted that as animation so long as there was something actively being animated in the shot. So if the shell, if Marcel is talking to you, you're like, that is a composite scene, moving on, boom, boom. Yeah. So as long as, and because he's in so much or his grandma, I love that movie. Actually, it's yeah. it's just it's like oh, it's so good. Um, I wanted to win just because I think it it has a level of emotional hook, and I couldn't get through Pinocchio, so that that would be the one I would want to win as well. 
Yeah, it, it it Marcel Marcel was one of those films that that had me in tears in the theater. Like it is just such beautiful emotion, uh, and it it's not manipulative in its emotion. It is it's so heartfelt and genuine, and it feels like the warmest um, hug around you, even when it is at its saddest. Um, because the hug just changes from being a, a happy hug to being a consoling hug to being back to being a joyful hug. And it is it is just such a wonderful film. Uh, Josh, anything else before we move on to the, the big categories? I wholeheartedly agree. Marcel is the light. I think it should win. I don't know if it will because Del Toro's there, but this movie is moving. It's great for all ages. It's well put together. I'm glad it's come a long way from its YouTube short and I would not be happier if it won. Fantastic. Okay, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna start with the acting categories, and I personally think that female actor is going to be t- a tough, and so I really want to have a conversation about that. Uh, so let's start with male actors. For uh, the nominations, the nominees are Austin Butler, Elvis in Elvis as Elvis and Elvis Presley, Colin Fer- uh, Farrell for the Banshees of Inisherin as Podrick, Brandon Fraser for the Whale as Charlie, Paul Mescal. After Sun as Calum and Bill Knightley, Bill Nye, sorry, as living as Mr. Rudney Williams. Sorry, the film is living. I don't know why I didn't have Is it Bill Nye or Bill Nye? I've never, don't it's, know the pronunciation. I say Bill Nye. Cool. I'll go with it. I've heard it both ways. <laughs> okay. So maybe he's Bill Nye, the science guy. Uh, we'll start with Michael this time. Who do you think's going to win? Who do you think should win if it's different? Absolutely. And and just uh, for the listener, an update from 1994. Tom Hanks has just inspired the 1997 In-N-Out starring Kevin Kline. So um, uh, <laughs> who I think is going to win versus who I think should win. I think Brendan Fraser is going to win for The Whale. Uh, who I think should win is Bill Nye. Uh, for for living um and i have asterisks big gigantic asterisks that require a, a greek mythological figure to to hold them up um i think that the whale is one of those films that will be forgotten as soon as the award season disappears um i do not think that it will have a, a, a lasting impact i think that the run that um fraser has had um on the award circuit has been uh we love you and we're sorry um and that is far more than most um female actors ever get in the the movie industry um i think that it's going to be fraser's going to win and it's going to be one of those um pieces of trivia where everyone's like brennan fraser he won an oscar what did he win it for and you know there's there's a big big history in the academy awards of giving awards to people for who they are rather than for the specific performance or the time and place that they, they decide to give them the award. And I think that it, this is going to be one of those awards. I love Brennan Fraser. He had a great run in the nineties. I think that he's a terrific actor and I love that this will undoubtedly propel him into more roles moving forward. I don't, I, I just wish that the whale wasn't the film that he was going to win for. Um, my asterisk beside Bill Nighy is that it's the exact same thing. I think that his performance in living is wonderful I think that it is one of those very strange things that he has been an actor that North American audiences have known now for 20 years, that he hasn't gotten a nomination 
before and this kind of feels like maybe the academy uh you know tossing him a nomination and saying like we love you we think that you're a terrific actor and they do this especially with austere british actors they'll just say like you know what you've done a whole lot for our industry and we really love you and you've got a good performance so this year we're going to give you a nomination i think that he is deserving um and i think that he's maybe a little more deserving than some of the other performances in the nomination list so um before i move over to you josh i just want to say so the fact that he didn't pick up anything at the baftas i think is uh that's very telling yeah. The fact that he couldn't even, the, the BAFTAs, uh, I actually think, uh, do a better job often of actually really landing on, like, the acting is good. It's less like, it's more deserving, less like, hey, I know that guy, I'm going to give them a, the thing. Uh, he didn't win at the BAFTAs, so I think that's a mark against him. And Brendan Fraser did win the SAG Award. I'm going to complain about SAG after Josh talks, because I have a fucking issue with, like, the hype around the SAG, just like Actra. Anyway, go ahead, Josh. Um, I, I would say, I think Brendan Fraser from the rail will win it. Do I want him to win it? Don't really care. Uh, saw the movie. It happened. It's fine. Everyone gets a fucking monologue. If you're gonna, if you're gonna give any awards to the whale, give it to the person who was also in the menu. The menu's fantastic. Did not get a single Oscar nomination. What the fuck? Um, uh, I actually would like for uh, Paul Mescal from After Sun to win. I'm a, I really enjoyed that film. I thought it was a really well put together drama. That fucking film is such a slog fest. It, it is a slog. I was fest, like, what the fuck? Am, and thing. I like independent cinema. And I was just like, give me the fuck <laughs> out of this so movie. Long. Okay, you didn't have to sit through Memoria this year. Fuck that movie. Um, that was a waste of time. Ten minutes of car alarms. And then, like, I I, I would love, like, I like. Banshees of Inner Sharon, but I don't love it. I don't love, love, love oh, it. I like, it. Fuck, I like a lot of the movies. I like Colin Farrell, and I like, I just don't think the director is a good writer. And there's a lot that goes back to that because I think with Three Billboards is, I think it's a wonderful movie. Francis McDormand is great, but there's just that Peter Dinklage subplot. He always has something a little extra. He needs to trim his story down, just really tighten up, take out 10 minutes to make his stories really pop. Really? And okay, Austin listen, Butler, listen, listen, really listen here, fucking movie. big wheel. So BAFTA gave him the fucking screenplay. The Australian gave him the fucking screenplay and the Venice fucking film festival gave him the screenplay award. But yeah, fuck it. It's not a good writer. <laughs> fucking suck it. No, I, I think he's really good at writing, but think of three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. I like the storyline they have, but there's no reason that Francis McDormand needed to go off on a tangent, date Peter Dinklage and take us away from the plot of the movie. I forgot what's happening. It was mm. distracting. He has too much going on. Didn't at he win point. an Oscar for that screenplay? Yes, he did. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you need to really streamline your characters. And then I, I, I wrote, I would like After Sun to win. And Austin Butler is really good in Elvis, but that movie is a pile of crap. It's oh, eighty. We're gonna fucking fight, buds. We're gonna fight. <laughs> I, 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 also, I mean, with Elvis here, when we get to Best Picture, I'll go into it more. But Elvis. Did they, they, they can't even have Tom Tank saying fucking still? He's like, he's in a closet reflecting. Move, 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 move. I get it. You can't sit still, Mr. Guy who made that movie thing. And also, why are we not doing deeper cuts? Why are these biopics so fucking shallow? Why are we looking at Queen and doing all this? I want deep cuts. I want Let's Play House. I'm a diehard Elvis fan from day one. I know every single album he's ever done. I want Live from Hawaii. I want JFK moments. I want more out of this movie and not just. I have hips. I think the performance is great. I think the I think it's just you know bad director. I go with uh, I go with 
as an aside, Josh, what's your opinions on uh, Elvis meets Nixon or versus Nixon? I had a lot of fun with that. It's weird. It's <laughs> odd. I also like when they do weird things with Elvis, like um, uh, Bubba Hotep's a lot of fun. Yeah. I like when they do a non-traditional approach, but if you're going to do something about Elvis, give us more to dive into. Like it's the same reason I didn't see respect. I'm going to know and find all the 10 facts to know about Aretha. We're going to hear all of that. And it's just going to be the same shit I already know. I could look up on Wikipedia. I want a deep dive. I want something. I really want to be invested in the character and learn something new and learn about their deep cuts. I don't just want a fucking greatest hit CD. People who listen to greatest hit CDs are boring. Listen to the full album or get off the music train, you know? And that's why Walk Hard is the best biopic ever made. That is a great biopic. It's so and, good. And I heard an argument. I heard, I heard an argument that this Elvis movie actually suffers because Walk Hard did this exact story better, better. 15 Agreed. years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are better Elvis biopics. I just think we need to go deeper on this material. But Austin Butler did a good performance. And I think the whale's going to win. And I hope Paul Mescal gets it for After Sun, even though the movie was a slog for you. I think it, it might have been IndieWire that did a whole article on biopics and how they are superficial. They're exactly yeah. what you said. They're, uh, although that said, I, I really liked, um, what is it? Uh, the one about Whitney, not Whitney Houston. Um, I, I, uh, Tina, the mm, Tina Turner yeah. one. Oh, what's love yeah. got to do with it? Yeah, yeah, man, that was fucking good. But I was like, it's, it was a long time since I've seen it. So maybe it does hit all there those There are things. great biopics. They're just few and far between. Like you've got Walk Hard, which is fun. I mean, I'll take Weird from this year, which did not get an Oscar nomination. I know it's a TV movie, but I had fun with that. But um, like Walk the Line was pretty good, but they did go to some deeper cuts with Johnny Cash and his music. And then there was the Bob Dylan one where they had six people six yeah. people play Dylan with Kate Blanchett. And I liked what they did with that. They brought something new to the table, something we learned. And biopics can be great. They can be incredible. They're either they're either Dewey Walk Hard or they're Goldeneye, where they're like, look, Ian Fleming, Bond references constantly, made for TV. It's like, it's like, no, either do something interesting or don't cover cover the subject material. And on the topic of that, where's my Jeff Lynn biopic for ELO? It's called Mr. Blue Sky. Just make me the movie. Freaking love ELO. I want it. Make it happen. Uh, you know, on the topic of biopics, the reason they are what they are is because. Yeah, the people that listen to the greatest hits albums are boring, but yeah. the people, the amount of people that bought the B side of a fucking album, a lot less than the people that buy the great, you know, everybody's got their Beatles fucking greatest hit. So you make that Beatles fucking, well, I mean, I guess it's Hard Day's Night, right? But, which yeah. is actually not a bad fucking movie. Anyway. It's a great, I, I enjoy Hard Day's Night. We're, we're, I fucking digress. This is the problem with having. <laughs> the, the, the Yellow Submarine is super weird. Recommend. It, super it is, weird. I think it is important to point out that the only musicals that have really landed at the box office over the last, let's say five or six years have been these jukebox biopics because conventional musicals have really been struggling to rediscover their audience. And it's not just the cats of it all. It's, you know, and it's not just the well, pandemic. West Side Story too didn't, didn't do fantastic, right? I mean, so, La La Land yeah. was the last one to do great. Oh, La La Land is fucking awful. Into, That's an yeah. awful film. We don't have time it's, to fucking it's... take that apart. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, so what I've got, is so uh so scott thinks that brendan frazier is gonna win uh scott as much as he's in mourning doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about um i've got austin butler for elvis as elvis presley and my main reason is just the data he won the bafta he won at the australian and he those are the two big ones so those are the two big awards the australian one's less important uh because less of those people are actually sitting in the academy but with the BAFTAs, 
some of those people are going to be in the Academy voting for best uh, actor. Now I am going to complain about the SAG award because often people say, well, you know, they won the SAG and that's a, a good marker of, you know, how it's going to do with the Oscars. And I say, kind of, because what people have to remember, you guys probably already know this though, is like the Screen Actors Guild encompasses all the actors and they all have voting rights, right? So you were in three fucking commercials, you got your SAG card, you're voting. Now, all of you are filmmakers, right? You've all made films at one point? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you've all met actors before, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Fucking actors are a fucking pain in the ass. And most of them know <laughs> nothing about fucking movies or film. Right? I agree. The, the amount, and I say this as an actor, the amount of actors I run into that don't know their fucking ass from their elbow when it comes to like, so who's your favorite performance? What's the favorite scene you have? And you're like, I like Marvel movies and I want to be famous. The only caveat I would put is, is stage actors. Stage actors know their shit because they're yeah. fucking hardworking. Like they are the journeymen of, of the acting world. So you got a bunch of fucking people in SAG and they look at that field and they're like, I don't know any of those, but I heard everything everywhere all at once is doing fucking awesome. And that's who you give it to because you're a fucking moron. And that's the only fucking movie anyone's talked about. You haven't even seen the other films. This also happens in the international category with the Oscars. I've read articles where directors are saying like, uh, I didn't even watch most of them, but uh, I knew so-and-so did a great movie before and I knew his name. So that's who I voted for, right? And so that's why I think the SAG awards are fucking bullshit. And they really don't have any real bearing on actual acting performance. That said, all the Academy members that are definitely American uh, and even some of the British ones are going to hold dual. They're also going to be part of SAG. So I'm giving it to Austin Butler uh, for best actor uh, just because it did well at the big award shows. And I think he, some would even argue he's the supporting role in his own movie, but that's fair. <laughs> he is nominated for best actor. And the fact that he, like I, the other one to me was Colin Farrell. I, I thought Colin Farrell did such an amazing job, but Austin Butler becomes fucking Elvis and he does a very good job. He's singing, he's dancing, he's speaking. Like even the family thinks that he did a fucking good job. So like, I mean, that trans type of transformative role is so challenging. And like, remember Austin Butler played Tex in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like that's what he went from fucking Texas cowboy to the fucking king of rock and roll and then the guy's from fucking australia right or is he british is he british or australia i have no clue he's not american though so neither one of those are american uh performances so uh scott gives it to brendan frazier i'm giving it to austin butler for uh elvis presley i think butler's got a good uh sliding doors moment in his career here um where he you know he are you was... quoting like the sliding doors film from like the 90s yeah. with starring john hannah and that's Bruce a Hulter, fucking yeah. great film <laughs> yeah yeah, it is that that is that was the first film that uh, managed to uh, explain the concept of multiple timelines to an audience without like being super pedantic. Yeah, um, I think that Butler could really use this as a as a catapulting uh, mm -hmm. opportunity in his career and be one of those actors, kind of like Hugh Jackman, mm -hmm. um, who once he escapes the Wolverine gravity can like really show off mm -hmm. a broad range of skills, and I think. I think if if Butler is Australian, it makes sense because Australian actors have to be journeyman times 10 because the industry 
has traditionally been so small in Australia. And that's why you get actors like Blanchette and Jeffrey Rush and Hugh Jackman and uh, Naomi Watts, where, you know, they, they have to do everything. They have to be able to do a stage performance, do a TV performance, do a film performance. They have to be able to be a one episode guest star on Xena Warrior Princess. They have to be able to sing and dance and do everything. It's the same as in Britain, but even smaller, therefore even more concentrated. Um, and, and to your point, Chris, about the BAFTAs, I think that that's the value of the BAFTAs is that you have both film and theater actors and, and directors and people in those industries. And it's the value of the quality of performance and the quality of craft that you see reflected in what the BAFTAs give their um, accolades to. And I mean, they're not perfect every once in a while. They have a, a little weird Z, but I think that um, Butler could really propel himself forward if he doesn't get immediately slogged down in Hollywood bullshit. If he gets cast as, I don't know, the Green Lantern in James Gunn's, uh, you know, Lantern verse or whatever uh, nonsense is happening over at Warner Brothers right now, if he can kind of go the Tom Hanks route and, and like, find prestige But, but not the Tom Hanks route in Elvis because he was no, the worst no. cast fucking person in that movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now that you explain the SAG, that explains why First Man got any nominations at all. Yes. They're like, I know that, that guy. Bad movie. That guy's hot. Yeah, I like him. Movie. I'm going to check this box. <laughs> I, I watched First Man. I could have taken a nap and better use my time better. Yeah. So, okay. So let's move. This to me is a hard fucking category. Best female actor. So we've got Kate Blanchett for Tar as Lydia. Is it Lydia? It's Lydia Tar. Yeah. Ana de Armas, blonde as Norma Jean, mm -hmm. Marilyn Monroe. Andrea Rosenborough uh, for To Leslie as Leslie Rollins. Michelle Williams, the Fablemans as Mitzi uh, Scholdenkout, Fableman. And then Michelle Yeoh for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And who did I start with last time? Did I start with you, Josh? I don't or did I start know. What, I have no clue. Why do you go? Start with me. So, so okay. Josh. All right. Uh, so uh, in the nominees here, I have actually seen all these films. This is good. Uh, uh, so I liked Blonde. I don't think it gets as much hate as it deserves. I don't think it's a perfect movie by no means, but I think Anna Desarmas does a really good job. Um, I haven't seen, I've seen most of To Leslie, but I got a little bored. I'm going to be honest. I saw an interview where it was like the best movie ever. And then I sort of turned it off. To be fair, uh, I didn't love The Fablesman, but I liked it. I think there's some good stuff in there. I think when we get to, if we do Best Supporting Actor, are we doing that at all or just the base stuff? Uh, no, just the big stuff. Okay, because I think Judd Hirsch uh, for Best Supporting Actor, I think he was great. And I, I loved everything everywhere at once. I didn't love it as much as everyone else. I liked it a lot. Um, but I think it's going to go to Kate Blanchett for Tar. Uh, that movie is mesmerizing. It's beautiful. It's symphonic. It has some of, I think, the best mo movie moments of the year. The whole movie, really, when you think of best actress or best actor, you got to think who carries the entire movie on their back. Kate Blanchett, if there's no, if she's not in Todd, that movie crumbles. Like in in Blonde, again, good performance, but I think that movie falls from some of the script and stuff, but still some really interesting moments and stuff. And then, like with Fables Men, I mean, it's a large supporting cast, so it's not like if you take her out, it's a big deal. And Michelle Yeoh has a supporting cast as well, and I very much enjoy that. But Tar for me is the movie that said. This is Kate Blanchett. This is not Memoria. This is her doing everything she loves. She's one of the most convincing, 
I, I love her and hate her at the same time for her performance. She's awful, but brilliant. She's terrible to her girlfriend, but at the same time, perfect for her. And the way they do that ending, the cinematography, the way that movie is put together. And the one thing I think that sets her ahead of everything, this is who I think should win. And this is who I think will win. So I'm actually going to put them together um, because most of that film, she doesn't speak. It's all facial acting. It's not monologues. It's not anything. It's her physically embodying that character and fucking killing it. So I'm going. Well, what, what I've learned from Josh is he hates monologues. <laughs> I like monologues in the right place. You in just the right don't like place. everybody everywhere all, all at once having monologues. <laughs> no, I think I think you really need to choose your words wisely. And monologues are a big moment. I think you have one log lot of film. You make it count. You make it matter. And you make it so that you're not over explained. Because a lot of monologues are like, I did this. So I did. No, it's like, tell us something we don't know about the character. And that's what I want out of a monologue. I want a monologue that tells us more. When there's nothing left to say, there's no other words they can say, there's nothing left to sing, there's nothing left to act on their face, then you monologue. Jack Nicholson, A Few Good Men, probably the best example of a monologue. Mm -hmm. Ties the whole Great fucking monologue. movie together. Why did exactly. I do these things? Because we live in a nation defended by walls and all of those walls are men with guns. Boom, 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 boom. Michael, mm -hmm. what do you think, man? Say, say what you will about Aaron Sorkin. The fact that he he came up writing for stage, he knows the importance of dialogue and the importance of monologue, and he knows how to um, activate and execute those things well. And that's why that you know, Few Good Men is, is still one of the best screenplays ever put to film. Um, uh, I just before we get into the category, you name checked uh, what's love got to do with it? The biopic about Tina Turner, Angela Bassett lost uh, to Holly Hunter in 1994 for that performance <laughs> um i gotta come up with a 1994 fact now let me quickly do this too bad we don't have like uh, the whole world's information somehow at our fingertips uh you know i just gonna look up 1994 <laughs> um i I'm, I'm going to agree with josh uh 100 at kate blanchett um from the nominees uh everything everywhere all at once is a film that i love that as much as michelle Yeoh is at the center of that that is a an ensemble cast uh, the, the film would not work if it wasn't everybody working together on that one. Um, Anna de Armas is probably one of the actresses that I am most excited to watch performances from. Mm. She's taken this place that I thought Alicia Whitaker was going to. Oh, uh, hold. she's phenomenal. She's phenomenal, uh, but she's kind of Hollywood got hold of her. Yeah, she chose bad roles. Yeah. So same with Chloe Grace Moretz. She was on the track to great oh, things. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. She is, yep. I will, I would say Chloe Grace Moretz, one of these days will win an Oscar if she stopped picking crappy movies. Yeah. Anna de Armas, every time I see her in something, she is uh, entirely different. She has, she, she can embody a performance. She can find uh, new and different and challenging ways to, to perform. Uh, I was surprised that Blonde was the one that got her a nomination. I think that she has other nominations in her future. Um, I think that she's just beginning her English language career. Um, of all of the performances in these nominees, Kate Blanchett is the only one that is a lead performance. The film lives and dies by her performance. And she doesn't, it lives and dies by her performance and it doesn't live and die by anybody else's performance in that film. Um, I think that Blanchett is is to her generation of actors what Meryl Streep was to hers, what um, Catherine Hepburn was to hers. Mm -hmm. I think that Blanchett is going to be one of those actors who 
um, rivals Streep in the number of uh, Oscars she wins. Um, I think that this performance um, is certainly the best biopic of Hans Zimmer that came out this year. Um, <laughs> but I think that uh, Tar is to Blanchett what Elizabeth was to Blanchett. I think that it is a it is a um, a career uh defining role in that it is like a, a pin that you will be able to put in her career that like the rest of her the next 10 years of her career will will pivot on and i th i think that if she doesn't walk away with the award um that a a huge upset has happened i think that yo will be her biggest challenger in the field just because of the attention that everything everywhere all at once and yo specifically has been getting elsewhere but i still suspect that it will will go to blanchett i'm yeah. not mad at michelle yo winning either i love no. michelle yo i just don't think this is her category and her time to win that's that's i just think it's not hers i hope that the attention that everything everywhere all at once is giving to yo means that she won't have to appear in a Witcher prequel on Netflix anymore <laughs> and that she will then get she, that she has already been cast in a role that will get her an additional Academy mm. Award nomination and that she will actually win for. Mm. So yeah, I I'm actually not even going to rehash what you guys said. I I agree with everything you said. Uh so Scott's giving it to Michelle Yeoh. Uh, I'm giving it to Kate Blanchett. Again, the big awards, uh, she she won it at the BAFTAs, she won it at the Australian Awards, and she also won it at Venice. Uh, it does, it lives and dies on her performance. Her performance is uh, fantastic. I love Kate Blanchett. Uh, I do also agree that Michelle Yeoh will be the greatest challenger because she has momentum. She won the SAG, although I think it's an ensemble at the SAG. Um, but again, a lot of those people are going to be now voting in this, um, and actor category will only be voted on by actors, unlike Best Picture. Um, but so before we move on, uh, I do want to talk about Blonde just briefly because it's not in any other category. If Blonde would have been just called actor, like if it wouldn't have been about yeah. Marilyn Monroe, it yeah. wouldn't have gotten fisted so no. badly because it's the acting phenomenal. The fucking mm -hmm. cinematography. I, so I actually... Uh, I'm going to plug my own shit. So I was right before <laughs> I went into production on my latest short film, Coffee. Um, I'm shooting in black and white. I move between black and white and color. I move between aspect ratios. Uh, Michael, you'll want to remember this after I come back from Sundance because you'll want to put it in your film festival. Uh, I had been mostly looking at stuff like Coffee and Cigarettes and Cold War and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then Blonde came out and I'm like, holy fuck, here is all my examples of all this stuff. It's so beautiful, so avant-garde, so arty, but because it was Marilyn, there is some big uh, opinions, and there's also a lot of history. I mean, people didn't re go and realize that it was basically fan fiction. The author wrote basically fan fiction about Marilyn Monroe, and that's what the screenplays played. So the director took a bunch of misogynistic hate as well, and it's like a woman wrote the fucking screenplay, <laughs> like, or wrote the book that the screenplay is based on. Um, uh, again, I thought her performance was great. She's, I, I think she's one of the best Marilyn Monroe's I've seen on screen. Um, I, I think if they were to redo a good Marilyn Monroe movie, I would definitely like to see her in that role again. Um, I think going, going back to Josh's uh, comments earlier about yeah. biopics, I think that it's more interesting to me if there is a, an actor or a politician or a uh, musician that is, is inspired a writer to, to write that story, 
do a control F and just change the name yes. and, mm-hmm. and give us a film that is inspired by someone's life yeah. and experience, but give it to us as an original property so that we don't come to it with the baggage of, well, here's another Marilyn Monroe biopic. Why do we need another one of these? And yeah. that's exactly kind of what Walk Hard did to Elvis. And that's yeah. part of why it's so good. You know, like if people just change the names on thing, like if it wasn't called Velma, people would not be so mad at it. Like, don't put, don't take, pre- and the same with like American Psycho 2 and tons and tons of films. If you just took the property value off of it and said, original idea, sorry, Hollywood, people would not care. They'd be like, you did something, you did something unique, you're doing this, whatever it may be, whatever the genre, whether it's TV or movies, musicals, anything like that. If you're doing something original, people are willing to watch it. But if you're slapping a namesake for namesake on it, people are going to walk away and be like, I've seen that. Or I don't like what you're doing like it with, I think with Elvis, I, you know, like I'm going to say, I know Elvis, you know, but if it was rock and roll star number five, I'd probably have a little more respect for it. You know, like I would, I would prefer a Chuck Berry biopic at that point, at this point anyway, but I probably don't want them to touch that because they'll ruin it. You know, like if you have an original name, people love it. And I think the best evidence for that is within all of most of these categories, the Fablemans. It's it's yeah. Spielberg's life, but yep. it's not called the Spielbergs. It's called the Fablemans. He's mm-hmm. able to, you know, tweak what actually happened to be a little bit, you know, better narratively, uh, narratively. Um, but this is this is the model that should be mm-hmm. used going forward. Okay, it so reflects I'm gonna, I'm gonna... enough of their life. So. Yeah. Okay. So the Fablemans is fucking awful. And if it wasn't made by Steven Spielberg, it would have been a direct to VOD fucking film. Um, Michelle Williams okay, is I'm the glad, one. Hold I'm on. Glad, the, I, I thought it was the only one who didn't like it. Yeah. Michelle Williams is the only person that doesn't even belong on this fucking list. Uh, the only reason she, and I love Michelle Williams, her flat ass fucking performance in this film. <laughs> I was like, is anybody directing her? Or like, maybe that's how Spielberg's mom is. Sorry, buddy. You made the movie after your own fucking life. If that was your mom, you got to jazz up that fucking character. Um, well, the I problem actually, is Spielberg. Huh? The problem is Spielberg. Spielberg hasn't, and I'm going to go a hot take here. Spielberg go. hasn't made great films since Saving Private Ryan. And Saving Private Ryan had a really great 10-minute sequence, some great character development, but those are two separate movies. If you look at the way he directs his Whoa, movies. Whoa, did you just take that take from Harvey Weinstein? Because that's literally what Harvey Weinstein No, did. no, I don't. Like he was the pitching half. the Academy at the time. I, I don't, I've never, I've never really listened to it. But Steven Spielberg, even with Munich, but the best example, I think, of Spie- Steven Spielberg's directing and why it's flat and why it doesn't work is if we look at Ready Player One. BFG's a fucking mess, whatever, big fucking giant, whatever. And I, I, I you know, Fablesman, I think, is more respectable, his best work since then. That doesn't mean I love it. But with Ready Player Wait, One- he did, I, he did shoot a music video on a phone and a chair for like <laughs> Mumford's and Sons or some shit. Fair enough. But the way he wraps the movie up, because he sets up the movie, we have the characters, we have the world, the special effects aren't bad, the main characters setting up are not bad by any means. But he feels the need to tie every fucking ribbon up in a tiny little bow. Character A, who got harmed by other character, has to come. It's like the end of Weird Al Yankovic's UHF. And much as I love UHF, it's a parody, it's on the nose. We don't need to know that so-and-so got the VR set, and -and so-and-so got the girl, and the other one got an upgraded house, and someone got to punch the guy from Rogue One in the face. We don't need to wrap that up the best thing a director can do is to leave the audience to fill in their own gaps is to leave the audience to think okay we get to end of ready player one they defeat them we frit we do the fist pump thing make it a real 80s breakfast club thing and you fill in the gaps 
of where the house is. When we get to the end of Fablesman, you fill in what he did with his career. You don't get the exact wrap up. At this point, Spielberg might well be, just pull a pull a Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So-and-so went on to be a doctor. It's like, <laughs> let the audience think. Wait, let I, the listen, I, I, I also like that in American Graffiti. I liked finding out at the very yeah, end when they works. wrote in. It works for certain <laughs> films. It works for certain films. But I think it insults the audience when you don't let them fill in the gaps, when you don't fill in the blanks. There's also the opposite where you don't explain enough. There's a fine line of giving the audience enough to respect them. Spielberg doesn't respect his audience. He thinks we're all a bunch of stupid moviegoers who will pay 10 bucks and never seen a flick. That's the way he's been for years. He doesn't respect us as cinema goers. I mean, Yurgos, Yurgos Lismos, who did The Lobster and stuff, he doesn't respect us in another matter because he always tries to over-explain things. If he just cut the last 15 seconds, brilliant filmmaker, love everything he does to the last 15 seconds. Spielberg doesn't respect filmmaking anymore. That's what I think has happened. I think with West Side Story, he just wanted to do a musical. It's a paycheck, big high-profile thing. He doesn't respect the audience. He doesn't respect the filmmakers. He doesn't respect the critics. He has to over-explain it. So we're like, oh, did you get your stupid pill today? Everything's perfect. <laughs> I don't, I, that's what I think on Spielberg. That's my hot take. But actually on that topic though, is he, so we are, I would consider everybody sitting here and hopefully listening to this podcast kind of cinephiles. Is Spielberg wrong? Has some large portion of the audience become fucking stupid and you better tie it all up or they're going to be on Twitter being like, but what about Jojo in the house? Like, I feel like there's an element to tie things up at the end of the film. Like if at the end of what's, what's a film, let me just turn around here. And like at the end of last night in Soho, which is a film I enjoy. Oh, I, that th- that's just the one to look at. It. From, okay. Let me take a different we, one. We can't go down too many of these rabbit holes. Or we're okay. Gonna be forever. But in, in short, <laughs> basically you want to tie up the main character, make sure they have a satisfying ending and call it. The side characters don't matter. That's the point. Sure. A- anything on the, on that, Michael, before I just finish my little run through here. I mean, if if Spielberg's plan was to to um, think that we're all dumb and convince us to spend ten dollars on um, going to see the Fablemans, it uh, backfired uh, terribly because I don't think anybody went to see the Fablemans. So <laughs> I saw it for free at the Princess. I, it, you know? yeah. <laughs> I, I saw it in the theater. I just walked in. Important to watch it because I'm like, oh, I gotta, I'm gonna have to talk about this movie. And I was like, well, that was awful. Um, I really did like Andrea Risenborough into Leslie. And I'm glad that there mm. was that weird campaign to get it on it. Mm. She, again, another transformative role. Like she plays like white trash fucked up so well in that film. Um, I agree with you. It gets a bit sloggy. I did enjoy it though. I don't think I'd watch it again, mm. but I, I, I was happy to have watched it. Um, yeah, man. Like I said, Michelle, uh, Michelle Williams does not belong on this list. And I think it's going to be between Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh. Okay, guys. So do you want to... I guess we're getting into kind of like best director because then we have best picture. So yeah. Uh, Michael's got Spielberg up. Okay. So we'll go. What's your senior, senior Spielberg ran the table in 94. Look at him with that arm full of Oscars. eh? like, (laughs) was that Jurassic park was 94. Uh, Schindler's List. Whoa. Schindler's List. Okay, he, he, on the laser so, disc somewhere. So, so Schindler's List got uh, film and director. Jurassic Park got all of the technical awards. Oh, okay. It was the same year. Uh, he left the set of Jurassic Park on wrap day, gave it to Lucas to finish and post while he went and filmed uh, Schindler's List. Wow. Uh, because I guess he doesn't need to sleep. Schindler's List is um, one of the best films he's ever made. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. So it's, it's beautiful. Um, so uh, we're doing director first. Uh, I think it's going to go to Todd Field. 
Um, I think that um, for everything that we've just discussed about Spielberg, he's Spielberg. You can't escape the Spielberginess of him. Um, I think that they've given him a, 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 a bunch of nominations here for a very personal movie that if he had announced it was going to be his last movie would be a... Uh, an emotional end to a career where he tells his family's story and his story from the beginning full circle, but it's not the end of his career. He's going to go on to make lots more uh, mediocre films over the next 10 years, probably. <laughs> um, Todd Field, uh, the Academy loves him. He's made all of three movies. It's been 15 years since his last film. Tar is a, uh, a big wild swing of a powerhouse film. Uh, it's not Whiplash, uh, which is to its uh, credit. Um, but they, they, they love him. They keep nominating his films for things. Uh, he hasn't gotten a single one yet. Um, and I think that he's due. Uh, I think that the Academy also probably suspects that he's due and first time in 15 years. It's It's got an air of the um, the James Cameron-ness about it without all of the arrogance of James Cameron. Um, Field is uh, lauded by his peers. You know, Scorsese will talk uh, about Field with, with uh, reverence every time he gets the opportunity. Um, and given the rest of the um nominees uh mcdonough has been chasing the high of in bruges since in bruges um the daniels fantastic um i think that same with yo everything everywhere all at once will hopefully uh give the daniels opportunity to make more of their weirdness and get more attention to their weirdness um further down the road um uh, it just field seems like the most obvious choice from the lot from the academy's perspective and i'm i'm sure and hoping that chris will will come at me with uh who's swept the other uh, major awards but field from an academy perspective feels like even if he hasn't won anything else might come from left field and and take it josh what do you think I, I agree that Tar definitely, that's the one I think, Todd Fields. I think Todd Fields definitely take it. But who I want to win is the most underrated, brilliant comedy of the year. I fucking love Triangle Sadness. It's, it's a good so yeah. good. Just the point in, in the middle where they're like, the rich people want everyone to go down a water slide. There's eight people on the boat. Like the way it's put together, it's like it's like a, a farcical parody, but still bringing its own thing, but like has elements of, it's Gilligan's Island. It's a brilliant, brilliant, film when we were screening at the princess like people were losing their shit laughing like it is a funny audience reaction film and i love triangle sadness but i think tar is going to take it ultimately at the end of the day with todd field but i think that what like you said um for triangle sadness for ruben osland i'm going yeah, that's right Usland. um yeah, I think that this will get him a another Best Directing nomination, and I can't wait to see what he does, because Triangle of Sadness is great. I've already pre-ordered the Criterion. It's one of my top ten of the year for sure. I think this year for Ruben is uh, what Yogos got with mm, the yeah. lobster. Uh, yeah. I think that I think that Ruben's the favorite is is coming down the pipe. Mm -hmm. We'll be here in a couple of years, and it'll uh, Ruben will be the 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 hands on favorite. Yeah, like, we'll just, just win best costume design this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like the favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so, great costume designer, legendary. So so Scott is a fucking Spielberg fanatic, right? You put Spielberg <laughs> on a list, he's picking it. So he's got the Fablements, which again, Scott, I know you're in mourning. You're a fucking idiot. There's no way this is winning best director. Uh, the Fablements is a 
fucking mess. It's boring. Everything uh, in the Fablements that's interesting about Spielberg, I saw in every Spielberg documentary I ever watched. Um, mm. I'm going to push back on Todd Field. So interesting. We just did a show on Eyes Wide Shut. And mm. Mr. Field uh, plays Nightingale, the old uh, piano oh. player in there. Hmm. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. I was like, why do I know that name? And I'm like, oh, fucking Tar. <laughs> so as much as I like a lot about Tar, I did not like the directing. I felt that uh, it needed some editing. It needed to be shortened. There's definitely scenes that I'm like, uh, this doesn't really have any relevance. Uh, a perfect example is where they try to make it into a thriller where she chases the girl into the building and then she's going into a couple of different cellars and then she falls down and you think, what, is she going to get raped or what? I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Um, I do love the ending though. Like mm -hmm. the where I am on top and where I am on the bottom. And even the way they, and I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't seen it, the way they lay it out and you think like, oh, she's just gone to a symphony over in Thailand and it's not even that good. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like cosplay shit or whatever. So <laughs> I, I'm actually, I wanted to go to Banshees of Inisherin because mm -hmm. I think that from a, from a director standpoint, it is perfectly paced. It is perfectly shot. And I don't mean the like the cinematics, although the cinematics are beautiful, it's Ireland. The, the shot choices are beautiful. The pacing is right, everything is good. But I think it's gonna go to everything everywhere all at once. And the main reason I think that's gonna happen is because the Director's Guild gave it their mm. win. And the Director's Guild reason. is gonna be mostly the same motherfuckers that are at the, the Oscars and they're, so they're going to vote here and they're going to vote there. And so that's where that like, it's pretty much just, I think the, the people have already voted the ones mm -hmm. that matter. Like the, no one else gets to vote in that class except they're the guild essentially. I, 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 when I watched Banshees, my immediate thought from the opening minute was uh, Martin McDonough went to the um, Dini Villeneuve school of filmmaking uh, between uh, three billboards and this one. Um, I, I think that, it shows growth as a director that he um, is has found like comfort at a distance with the camera. Um, his other films have all been fairly, you know, he's he comes from stage, so his comfort is is from the shoulders up, and his his camera has tended to stay there. Uh, and this one, he he found in the beauty of Ireland the ability to pull back and and find the depth of field in his camera. I think that's a good thing for him as a as a director. Uh, I thought that it was beautifully shot. Um, I just I don't think that it's um, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I think that Spielberg and the Fablemans is the sort of film that 10 years ago, the, um, the Academy would have been just like drooling and mm -hmm. falling over because it's so it's, it's a movie about movies. And 10 years ago that they, they loved that. And the, the Academy loves anything that can be self-masturbate, self-masturbatory. Um, is I think it masturbation that, by its very definition self? I don't know. You can we could Google experiment. It. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but I think that that I think that that the Academy for all of its faults is starting to grow. And I think they've mm. grown out of their that phase mm. um, for the time being anyway. Um, and I think that um, Banshees is beautiful. It deserves cinematography um, mm. more maybe than directing. Can I say something, a hot take about Villeneuve? Actually, I'm going to say this is my fucking show. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, not great at directing actors. Hmm. <laughs> I don't love his direction of actors. And so the flip to that would be Paul Thomas Anderson, great at directing actors, mm. great at the cinematics, 
Not great at like storytelling though. Hmm. But anyway, I would actually say Delan Del I'm saying this wrong. Is a bad has a bad editor because with the way Dune had swelling music, like Whoa, the movie's gonna end. No, okay, we're gonna do more. <laughs> Whoa, the movie's gonna end. Like I get it, dude. Don't put the swelling music till the fucking end. Like other than that, like that's the sound I think he's editor. A bad that's editor. The, that's the sound editor. The, the sound, sound editor designer, should yeah. be shot. It's bad editing. It doesn't make any damn sense. Don't hype the audience like that. It's like someone's like, you could win a million. Oh, but you got to pay a five dollar ticket, and you do it for the rest of your life. It, it doesn't make any sense. And then also, you have a character at the end who doesn't fit. But Dune is another. I love. Dude, I don't the first know why anybody even tries to make Dune into a movie. It should actually. I like the first three be, quarters enough. Dune would be something that like um, an Amazon or a Netflix, and and mm. you would just go through the whole all the books and write mm-hmm. ten seasons and just try that because it's anyway. Yeah, I'd be down for that. That sounds great. Dune is the confederacy of dunces of trying to adapt a book to a movie, except they always, they keep succeeding in adapting it. It just doesn't ever work perfectly. And and there's an argument that it's unadaptable. The best Uh, Dune movie is the doc about how they never made Dune. Yeah. Is that the uh, Daryl von Skansky one or whatever? Yeah, or, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one's great because it t- it's like it's got a really cool subject and it has something to do with Dune. That's my favorite Dune yeah. film. It's the same as the 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 best Don Quixote movie is the movie about how Don Quixote yeah, didn't yeah, get yeah. made. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes the failures and, and the same with Apocalypse Now. Um, yes. I, I would argue that the documentary about the hellscape that was in that yeah. movie is Heart better. Heart of Darkness than is so much better than Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now, Now any yeah. day. Yeah. I think we should pay some uh, uh, directors to just go out and make a passion project and not actually complete it. Just oh, like no. drive everyone yeah. insane. <laughs> I want to see this on like a Michael Bay set. That's a doc I would pay to see. Uh, oh, yeah. I just want to see him going nuts with his actors and then get Christian Bale on there and he can rant. Mel Gibson can do something. You just see what happens. <laughs> yeah, just get all the problematic, get a problematic director, yeah. actors, and like a yeah. problematic, you know, pull Harvey Weinstein out, get him to produce Army it. Hammer can be the lead. <laughs> This is the movie, just a doc behind the scenes with problematic people. People would watch it, drama. And the title people is- People still watch the fucking Kardashians. Problematic. Oh, the... Boom, done. Yeah, I've That's the it. title, just boom, problematic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, guys, so this is like, we're at, we're, man, this is the longest show in the history of our show. I love it, it's great, I can do this all day. Uh, although when I turn on podcasts that are two hours long, I'm like, what the fuck are these guys gonna talk about for two hours? I do think we've kept it pretty much on point. Sometimes you turn on those podcasts and it's like, Hey man, so uh, what were you doing today? I had a sandwich. Oh, it was a pretty good day, you know. I mean, I, I made a sandwich. It was wonderful. Yeah, I had a really great tea for breakfast. My Alexa. Yeah, uh, I never it. ate it. It was just for Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then my gaffer came. Hey man, here my gaffer. Anyway, we're not going to do that. Oh, my uh, gaffer's the best. Let's talk to him. <laughs> the the award for best gaffer goes to. Uh, so for best picture, uh, which one do you guys want to go first, man? I'll let uh, Michael go first. Yeah, uh, I. He's got I Spielberg think- up there, so. Uh, it's 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 Spielbergo. Um, here, I think it's going to be everywhere, all uh, everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once, and I want it to be everything, everywhere, all at once for a simple reason. I like it when weird stuff wins Best Picture, um, and I think that the Academy is getting more comfortable with the weird stuff. Otherwise, Shape of Water wouldn't have won. Um, what was that? Three, four years. Even ago? Parasite, like not the Parasite super yeah. weird, but for yeah, the American Parasite. audience, like. The, the heartland of America, like, their fucking head blew up. They're like, what yeah. the fuck is it? This mother... I, they're not even speaking English. As, as a lifelong Oscar watcher, I like that Green Book was the outlier in the last batch of Best Picture winners and not the 
the mm. the the rote norm. So I, I think that the more that movies like Everywhere All uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once win, I think that it both increases the uh, general audience for different types mm. of movies that don't fit uh, neatly into a mold, especially with the theatrical ecosystem the way it currently is we need movies like everywhere everything everywhere all at once to break through uh, so that our multiplexes aren't just filled with uh, marvel movies or or those sorts of um you know big blockbusters um but also for the success of repertory houses i mean this is a this is a crossover hit uh it deserves to be a crossover hit and winning the best picture is just kind of a, another um mark in the category for these types of films not necessarily experimental but definitely not conventional uh i was reading variety the other day their current uh uh pick for winner is top gun maverick and god help me if top gun maverick wins best picture uh it wouldn't surprise me but i that is a desolate desolate choice if it does win hold on popular movie category how for so the variety must have been paid for that so top gun maverick has won no awards no. Uh, like other than maybe some technical awards that i didn't the get into. only accolade that top gun maverick has is that it is the highest grossing film of the year uh, and that is because tom cruise refused to allow theaters to stop playing it so it just made a steady like two million dollars uh, every week but it did that for the entire year that is the only metric that is it, it could be judged by because it has won nothing else well i mean if you were playing numbers then you go avatar way of water which is like i think the fourth Ugh, highest gross film. i was looking today that like uh james cameron in the top four highest grossing films has three of them yeah <laughs> yeah, so, yeah he won't give us a blu-ray of true lies like what the heck give me a blu-ray <laughs> of true lies i want that I want the arnold which, top, top, top Top Gun Maverick. Have you guys both seen Top Gun Maverick? Yeah. I've seen it twice. I enjoyed it. I don't think it deserves to win an Oscar. I thought it was fun. Yeah, I had, I, I had fun with it. I saw it twice in the theaters. I had a lot of fun with it. I had the moving seats. It was great. I felt yeah. like I was in a in a fighter jet. If Top Gun Maverick wanted to actually like be competitive at the Oscars, actually, so I'm going to give my spiel on what I think a best picture needs to have. So it's it you know it has good directing, it has good screenplay, good cinematography, good acting. Usually one of the main categories it wins like three of those at least. Mm -hmm. The other thing that a, a best picture usually has to have is scale and scope. It needs to be a big film, right? And it needs to have an emotional hook. There needs to be gravitas in the movie. This is where I, I actually think Avatar: Way of Water has some good gravitas in it. Uh, when the animal, when the fake animals get killed, it makes me really sad. I don't. It, it's fucking traumatic. Um, I think that because it's, I don't know what is that CGI, whatever, whatever weird space fucking animation that James Cameron is using, whatever we call that, uh, motion capture. Uh, I think well, that's probably stuck a bunch of balls on a whale and they filmed that whale for 19 years. And then that's the, the movie. <laughs> they made it exactly like boyhood, but with whales. <laughs> exactly. With whales. Um, I think that if Top Gun really wanted to be competitive, okay, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, they would have killed Pete Mitchell. When you think that he's dead, if you really wanted this to be an Oscar contender, you would have had him stay fucking dead. That would have given that movie, I would have been like, yeah. It worked in Gran Torino. Yeah. Fuck, that's yeah. a fucking solid film. Um, I love that movie. But sorry, they just kill it, a guy and that's the thing. So yeah, Top Gun Maverick is not going to win the fucking Oscars. Variety is fucking full of shit. And they clearly took a bunch of fucking, like, that is just such a ridiculous fucking that statement. And especially from Variety. So you wrote them a check. 
yeah, from variety. Like, guys, come on. If you're going to be whores, at least do it behind the fucking the back door. Like, let's not do it so openly. Um, yeah. Anyway, did you even say who you think? Oh, yeah. You did no, Josh. No, I haven't got it. You can go ahead. If you want to go, Chris. I mean, it's up to you. It's no, whatever no, you, you like. You, you I'm having a ahead, good Josh. time here. You, you go ahead, Josh. Um, I think the Fablesman is going to take it because Hollywood is stuck so far up their own ass. They're a dildo. So, you know, um, it's just so predictable. It's so academy. But if I had to pick something that I want to win, I'd really like Tar to win it. I mean, Nomad Land won for a similar type of aesthetic mm-hmm. in 2021. I really, really like Tar. Again, if it's not clear, I like Tar a lot. Um, but I think it's the most um, Oscar-y film, as you mentioned, for all your categories there. Um, minus a little bit of story, as you mentioned. So, um, but I, I just, I just feel like uh, Fablesman is going to take it because it's Spielberg. It's like it's either they give him this or a lifetime achievement Oscar. They have to give him something. Because he doesn't have enough Oscars. No, 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 no. He needs his own. He needs like two or hundred more, and then he'll be yeah. good. You know, you he's can't... the greatest director to ever live. I mean, I, I don't think so. But you, you know, you, you can't have an odd number of Oscars. No, that's even that's unnatural. Only. You can't yeah. have a coffee table in your house that doesn't have an Oscar on it. Come on, man. no. Come on, man. So I don't think the Fablemans is going to because it hasn't won any of the major awards going into the season. Uh, so Scott, and I think this is the same one that's going to win. So Scott, you're actually going to get one right by accident. <laughs> Nipa picked everything everywhere at once. And so the reason I think that this is going to win, so it won the BAFTA for editing. It won at Venice. It won the Director's Guild. Uh, and it won the Producer's Guild, which is that the Producer's Guild to me is a big fucking key. That means all the Hollywood producers were like, yep, it won at SAG and it won at Gotham. It's just got too much momentum and it's got momentum in the right places. So there's the actors, there's the directors and there's the fucking producers and editors. Like that's it, man. And like, it's got what it's the most nominated film at the Oscars. Uh, I don't think it's going to pull a silence of the lambs and win all the stuff, but I do think that it's got best picture lock. So I don't actually like this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I found it, I, I watched it once and I was like, hmm, I don't think I understand this film. Uh, then I tried watching it again. And I'm like, I don't care to understand this film. So I think there's a lot of cool shit. I think if you're in film school, watch this movie. I think this is what I said when we co- covered it on the show. Uh, as far as entertainment, I was not entertained. Um, I think there's a lot of like really cool, interesting performances. I think there's lots of interesting cinematics. It's like a bunch of vignettes that you jam them together. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis with, you know saggy boobs that's cool i guess i just think that it's all it's a lot of hype i am happy that it's it's getting a lot of people like um for best supporting from the goonies and uh Mm. indiana jones temple doom uh i think it's great that it's reviving these careers but we don't we shouldn't be giving awards the oscars are not supposed to be uh participation awards uh it's not my favorite film i (laughs) you guys are i i'm actually i was gonna say um, it reminds me, I think everything everywhere at once is going to have that effect as like the boondock saints has as kids in college, you know, mm. or as beauty and the beast has on little kids. They think it's the greatest thing ever. They've never seen anything better. They go to college, to see boondock saints. You know, it's like when you go to film school or you Pulp think, Fiction and you're like, that's exactly. the greatest movie ever made. Oh, if, uh, if you're an actor and you audition for my thing and you do fucking Pulp Fiction, you're fired. Get off my set. No Pulp Fiction allowed. But like, I think it's wait, one wait, of those. Unless, unless, unless you play. You're playing Bruce Willis's pregnant 
girlfriend. I would accept that. But if you do the anything from John Travolta or Samuel L. Jackson or anything like that, nope, out, sorry, let's find something different. Someone did a monologue from Dogma and I was like, you got it. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want to see. It's it's the um, it's the fear and loathing in, in Las Vegas. It's the thing that you discover when you're a teen because you're learning everything for yeah. the first time, and you think it's the most profound thing. And yeah. then you grow as a human being, and there's there's no fault to that. Like you liking that stuff when you're developing, absolutely. If it influences you in little bits for the rest of your life, absolutely. But just also recognize and grow enough to know that there's more and better beyond that. It's like when I thought Metallica was the only metal band and Bon Jovi was the only 80s band. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were, you're slightly off on that. I was like seven. I was like, yeah. And then I got to nine and I'm like, soul and blues exist. So, I mean, I really like Triangle of Sadness. I don't think it's it's got enough going on. Top Gun Maverick, we've already talked about. I think Women Talking should not even be on this fucking list. That is oh. a they, It's like there was three fucking camera shots in the four, sorry, with the, the drone shots in the whole film and they just kept fucking hitting them. The editing is so jarring. You would think that it was like trying to be a Quentin Tarantino film, except to not deliver it. Like one shot to two shot, one shot to two shot. I was like, who the fuck is the editor on this? The screenplay's awful. I know Sarah Pauly, you won an Oscar for screenplay writing. Get someone to fucking review your screenplays next time. What the fuck is going on here? Here's the thing about women talking. I have no problem with a film about this. I thought you were material. gonna say, I have no problem with women talking. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I grew up in freaking Elmira, home of the Maple Syrup Festival. I know enough Mennonites. I know they have problems. I don't need to watch a movie about <laughs> Mennonites having problems with dudes. I know enough growing up in school wearing their bonnets and their hats and their capes, whatever they call that stuff. I, riding their horse and buggies. I know they have problems. I know there's a bunch of dudes doing terrible things. I don't need to watch a freaking movie about it and be like, hmm, maybe men should be better. I'm not freaking Mennonite. I'm not even, I, I'm just a guy who lived in a Mennonite town and I'm sick of Mennonites. When actors come down from Toronto, they're like, hey, a horse and buggy. Oh, oh, I can't spend my credit card at their stand. I'm like, no, it's not a big freaking deal. It's a person with a weird hat who decided technology fucking sucks. I don't want a movie about it and I don't want to watch it. I just don't care. Josh, uh, can you show us on the doll where the bad Mennonite touched you at the Maple Syrup Festival? <laughs> Can I ask a question? I know we're running long. Can I ask uh, each of you a question? Is there a film from the Best Picture nominees that you think it could be a dark horse come from behind, no uh, no indication that it's going to take it, and then take it? I'll fly on the Western, Western Front. front. Yep. Boom! Yeah. <laughs> it's it, it's going to win Best Foreign yeah. Picture. You never know what it could do. It could pull International a parasite. Picture. Guys, international, international picture. Come on now. They, they, they keep renaming the categories, <laughs> and I am in 1994. Best film from not here in the U.S. of A. Land of the Freedom. Yeah. But honestly, there's a lot of missed nominations. The menu got nothing, and I'm sad. It yeah. needed something. Best screenplay. Just give me screenplay, like Get Out did. You know, just give me screenplay and call it a day. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, Banshees for Inishir, and I was like looking at all the. It won so many screenplay awards, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, it's not up for a Writers Guild award. Writers Guild changed its format uh, for qualification. You basically mm. had to have Writers Guild people working on the film, mm. and they made so it just boom. It's just not on the list anymore. Also, right? where's the nomination for Northman? At least give it something. Costume, that movie's makeup, fucking awful. Maybe cinematography. Give it, like, give it something, because I enjoyed it to a percentage. I thought the costumes were great. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna give Suicide Squad costume, you can give the, Northman. Uh, sure. This is a, like any anything that's set more than a millennium 
a go deserves at least to get a costume or yeah. a set design nomination out of it. Um, and that's where last night at Soho, like it looks yeah, really exactly. nice, but yeah, it's, it's a very it's pretty movie. train wreck of a fucking movie. <laughs> oh, I really like that movie. I, I will defend that movie. Uh, I like the way it portrays. I, we'll I love that, that film. And we'll bring you back. And then, <laughs> then you can have me really fucking throw some fucking. I really like you. what they do with it. It's psychologically, but it's a little bit of a mess. And I absolutely love it. I think it's, I think it's purposely messy and I think it's beautiful film. I want Elvis to win Best Picture, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, Bohemian so. Rhapsody almost did it, so you never know. But if Bohemian Rhapsody won Best Editing again, I would... That's a music video. And, you and, don't the only, and, and the only reason that I think there may be an upset with Everything Everywhere All at Once is because for Best Picture, and I know you guys know this, is that the entire Academy votes. And this is something that Harvey Weinstein used to be really good at, is he would go find that old man in the fucking old age home who's an academy voter and be like hey you should see uh my film i uh, save in private ryan it's only 10 minutes fuck that uh somehow shakespeare <laughs> in love is a better film and i like oh that was a big upset. i actually really like that film the idea that it beat basically recreating world war ii <laughs> what the fuck it's Harvey like how green was my valley one in 39 happened. so how green, was my, How green Was My Valley won, and that movie, no one remembers, no one saw it, and there was like, that was 39. You had Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz nominated. So like- Yeah, that's fun. You had Stagecoach by John Ford. You had so many things, but How Green Was My Valley, like, that's the one. Do you know that uh, Gone with the Wind is still, if you if you correct for inflation, is the highest grossing film mm. of all time? It's something nice. like 3.5 billion people. Because literally everybody in America watched it multiple times because it was the uh -huh. only movie- in hmm. movie theaters. Yeah, they would just keep putting it out in theaters. Every time uh, they didn't have something else to put out, they're like, well, we'll just put Gone with the Wind out again. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, there's so many movies to put out in theaters. I mean, bring back Robocop to theaters. I'd go. <laughs> I'd watch it. it it's, it's, it's that stat that like um, the, the, the horrific uh, uh, train movie that Zemeckis made with Tom Hanks, uh, Polar Express. Oh my goodness, that's a Pol nightmare fuel. <laughs> Polar Express has one of the highest uh, box offices yeah for a, like a Christmas film because they release it every year at Christmas mm -hmm. for just like four weeks in December. And it quietly makes like an additional like $12 million every year. So well, that's why Titanic is up there. They keep re-releasing yeah. 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 and yeah. and again and again. And I don't care. Go watch A Night to Remember. That's a better movie and we don't have to deal yeah. with the Jack and Rose bullshit. That said, if you, when was the guys, when, was, when did you guys last watch Titanic? Uh, last week. Yeah. So I watched it like when it's re-released. I have to give James Cameron credit. The directing on that is amazing. Like, take it's out a the technical like, film. Holy it's a technical fuck! Film. Like, I'm just like watching shit happen, and I'm like, I would not want to be the director on this fucking movie. <laughs> like, fuck oh, no, I wouldn't want to be. But that's no. Cameron. Cameron, it, whatever else you want to say about Cameron, Cameron is the most competent technical director. Yes, working hundred percent. Um, and you you kind of forgive him for the 15 year gaps between films because you know it's going to be the most technically proficient film you are going to see it's going to be worth those 15 years it's just the other areas where he trips and falls down the stairs like i love terminator 2 but more for the tech but the story's not perfect it's just a road chase movie you know like aliens man aliens, aliens is, is the great, best james cameron fucking movie it's ever. a great yeah. movie yeah yeah, that is, that is the pinnacle of, of his career. Yeah. And I am fine with him being the director that does a thing that then propels the entire industry forward for the next 10 years. Yeah. I mean, people are mad that people don't like Avatar. I love it for the tech. I could care less about the story. The tech is yeah. brilliant. You yeah. know, like, we can accept the director for that. That's perfectly okay. Yeah. Anything else, guys? 
this was like a great show. Scott, uh, Scott was worried that after meeting with you guys, we would just replace him. So I said, uh, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I, it was up to you. I mean, depends how much you love Spielberg or not. <laughs> uh, do you guys have anything else you want to pitch before you leave? Uh, Josh, you're, okay. Yeah. You're going, yeah. Do your, Oscars come see thing. me at the Oscars free show. I'm giving away prizes, posters, pins. You get the dealio. You could win a popcorn. I'm hosting and telling crappy jokes. I'm even going to talk during the red carpet event and attempt to do stand up Like I always do. The audience is never ready for me and I'm never ready for them. Princess cinemas, March 12th. We're going to open the doors probably about one hour before. And if you can come later, we're going to have cinema two there. If you don't want to hear me talk, my voice is a little bit grating on you, you know, between that and uh, hopefully you know, no one slaps each other at the Oscar because that was the most awkward moment I ever hosted. <laughs> yeah, we don't have time to talk about that, but yeah. Uh, Michael, do uh, you want to throw some Grand River down? Absolutely. GRFF.ca. We're going to be announcing our lineup for our festival uh, in the next couple of weeks. You can get tickets there for May. And if you are a filmmaker and you want to submit to our future festivals, it's the same website. Check it out. All the details are up there. And uh, as usual, all those links will be in the show notes, both on the YouTube channel and on the audio. Thank you guys for coming out. I appreciate it. It's been a great show. Uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend and hopefully your predictions come true. Thank you, Chris. Rock and roll, Go, guys. 